Hey, you can begin to find your way to the book of Jeremiah. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't have it on your phone, you can find a copy of the Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, man, that'd be a, a gift we'd love to give to you and to your family. And if you don't know where the book of Jeremiah is located, don't feel bad, right? There's a table of contents at the front of that, or you can just start at the beginning and just flip to the right until you get there. And so the big numbers are going to be chapter divisions. The small numbers are going to be verse divisions. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29, journeying through verses 4 through verse 7 this morning. So let me give you a second to find your way there. Two years ago in October, uh, we were in a, a missions month, and we're kind of going through, and I had selected uh, three or four passages that kind of hopefully would set our hearts on what I felt God was calling us to do, would set my heart on what I thought God was calling me to do, and would help make us into a people who are following him out of obedience in our hearts. And so I, I did not know yet at that point uh, how those things would come together, but, but how those things have come together has been so much uh, more beautiful. It's required so many more people and it has taken so many years off Ken's life that you just can't even begin to imagine. But, but those passages, I just want us to look at that for a moment this morning. This next week, we are going to join together with over 20 other churches, five nonprofits, over 300 volunteers, and be impactful in Greenville together. But I want us to just take a moment, see where that came from, and begin to ask God if he would set our hearts on glorifying him in the midst of that process, okay? And so as we began our look at this a couple of years ago in October, we start off in the book of Genesis. Now, this may seem to you an odd place to look to go to in terms of investigating God's call and this, this missional call to live out and to be on mission for him. But we're in Genesis 12, and what you find in Genesis 12 is God finds a, a nobody from nowhere, and he puts his blessing, he puts his hand upon him. And so he finds this guy, Abram, and he puts his hand upon him, and what we read there in Genesis chapter 12 is that I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. Why? That you will be a blessing. He says that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we begin to get this understanding that God was looking down and he found this guy and there is really nothing significant in him outside his having received the blessing of God. And so the blessing of God comes upon him, and then God gives him this commission that everywhere he goes, his family is to be a blessing, and God is going to use his family to extend his blessing, God's blessing, to everybody that Abram encounters, to everybody Abram encounters. So begin to recognize that the Christian life should be moving in parallel, in tandem to this idea. We are those who have received the blessing of God in the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And in that, everywhere we go and everyone we encounter should recognize the presence of God in our lives and our involvement and investment in their lives should lead to greater blessing for them, right? And so we get into this and then we move to Isaiah. And Isaiah has this amazing word for us there in chapter 1. Isaiah, writing to his audience, said, Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds before the eyes of the Lord cease to do evil. So he calls them to kind of put off sin. So we recognize that you, that you and I are not so different than those that Isaiah wrote to. We have this ability to allow insipid sin to quietly make its way into our lives and take up residence in our hearts. 
And we find ourselves not serving God, but serving the sin that so happily resides in our hearts. And so Isaiah writes to these people who had the same predicament, the same problem, and he effectively says, stop it. Cut it out. Find this sin that's in your life. Put this sin away. And then he has this instructive word to them. Learn to do good. Seek justice. As those who are followers in faith of Jesus Christ, I believe God would say that same word to us two years ago, and he's saying that same word to us today. Learn to do good. Can I tell you that good doesn't happen by accident? Good doesn't happen by me just wandering into Walmart, wandering up and down the aisles and checking out and saying, I didn't see anything good happen in there. You know, I guess God didn't have anything good for me. Good doesn't happen just by you living in a house in a neighborhood. Your neighbors drive by and say, wow, their grass is really cut. Well, you know, I've never heard them yell, bicker, or fight, and I don't see them burning tires in the backyard. They must be Christians. Good doesn't happen accidentally. People don't recognize you as being a Christian unless they hear you testify to the goodness of our God in Jesus Christ. And so he writes, he says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Correct oppression, so this sees us moving firmly out of our lanes, right? There's so much oppression that happens in other people's lanes and in other people's lives. And so if we are going to correct oppression, then we necessarily have to get involved with other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the only oppression you ever seek to be engaged in is that which directly affects you, friend, that's not correcting oppression. That's seeking to satisfy and gratify self. Now, there may be real oppression coming your way, and you need other brothers and sisters to come alongside, and you need to invite them into your life and say, come help correct oppression in my life. But if we're primarily only ever interested in correcting oppression in so much as it adversely affects us, this isn't following the gospel mandate of Jesus Christ. He says, bring justice to the followless and plead the widow's cause. So we find in both of those passages, one, everywhere we go, our lives impact on others should lead their lives to be better. Two, we recognize that our lives in recognizing oppression, in recognizing difficulty, in witnessing the fatherless, in recognizing people who need our help should call us not to say, wow, that really stinks for them. That's really terrible for them. God, thank you for the blessings you've given me in my life and that I'm not this hapless person who has all of these terrible things happen to them. No, are you kidding me? What this calls us to do is for radical investment in seeking to engage those who are facing difficulties. Our lives bring blessing because we know Jesus. Our lives change their circumstances because we follow Jesus. So we get into Jeremiah 29. This is week three. By this point, my heart's just on the floor. I feel like God's just taking it with a hammer and saying, you like that? I'm gonna give you some more. I'm like, God, please, no, not one more. I just don't think I can take it. Corporately, I don't think they can take it. And he says, okay. No, I'm just going to keep doing it. And so we get into Jeremiah 29, and this is what he writes. Now, Jeremiah writes to a group of exiles. He writes to a group of people who have lost their homes. He writes to a group of people who have been forcibly removed. Imagine if somebody comes into your house, they say, "Uh, we're just going to burn all your stuff. You don't need to worry about taking it. We're going to take you, we're going to take your family, and we're going to relocate you hundreds of miles away into a foreign land. This is what happens. And so the Babylonians come into Judah and they they take all the Israelites and they they carry them off into a foreign land and they carry them off into this place where they don't know the people that are oppressing them, right? Outside of the fact that they are the enemy and they have removed me from my home, they have destroyed my temple, they have killed my wife, they have killed my mother, they have killed my children, they have been 
uh, seeking to oppress me for many years. This is how they know them. Do you feel the hatred that they should have towards them, right? If not, you're not paying attention. And so begin to recognize that there should, should be some significant animosity in their heart towards their oppressor. It's natural. They've lost their home, they've lost their temple, they've lost their way of life. They've been removed and transplanted and placed somewhere they know not. So in the midst of this, Jeremiah, who is the guy all along telling them this is what God is going to do, and all along they're saying, don't pay any attention to him. We have these guys over here that say everything's going to be good, great, and wonderful, and we're going to win the lottery someday. So Jeremiah effectively sends them this letter from some distance communicating to them, one, I was right and you were wrong, two, now it's time for you to start listening. And so he writes from them from the perspective of, I was right, you were wrong, and now it's time. You'd better start listening. And he has this instructive word for them and for us. Look what he says, Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You see, they were very tempted. They were very tempted to believe that the reason they were there is because they were so very good and the Babylonians were so very bad. They were tempted to believe that their circumstances, that these things led to their displacement, but it had really nothing to do with their heart's position and posture before God. So Jeremiah corrects any possible misunderstanding, and he says, this is what you need to know. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies has sent you into exile. You see, this Babylonian king did not move of his own volition and free will. This Babylonian king didn't come in there and sack you because he's such a mighty military ruler. He was able to do this because God had sent him to do this. And you are in exile because that's what God has for you. And that's what God is punishing you with according to your rebellion. That's what they had received from disregarding the word of God. So they find they are where they are according to God's good, good providence and according to God's plan. And so he writes to them in the midst of this thing. And so one, they know that they are where they're supposed to be and God has placed them there. And so in the midst of having received that, he comes in and he tells them, build houses and live in them. Now this gives us the indication that many of them were seeing this as some type of temporary deal. God was going to come in, he's going to swoop in, clean this whole thing up. And as Bob's your uncle, they'd be back in Judah before you knew it. And so what we'll come to find out is that they will be there a full 70 years. 70 years they will be uh, residing in the land of their enemy. For 70 years they will be outside of their home. And for 70 years they won't be able to offer sacrifices in the temple. So God goes to them and he says, this is not something temporary. This is not something where you can live as a transient. Build homes and live in them. I want you to begin to think of the permanency that this echoes in their hearts. Think of the permanency that this echoes in their hearts. Those who have oppressed them, those who have beaten them, those who have destroyed their previous way of life and existence. Now they live among them. They live on the streets with them. They reside close to them. And they're supposed to make this place, not somewhere that they're passing through, but they're supposed to make this place their home. So then he writes to them next, and he says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Think about that for a time. They say, oh, he tells us we have to build houses and we live in them. That's going to be better. Nobody likes to live in a tent. Mine leaks. God is putting us on a path that I think is wise. We should follow that. And then he says, and and you're supposed to plant crops 
and you're supposed to eat from them. So you say, okay, this may last more than a season. This may last more than a season. And I suppose we're going to have to find out what these jokers plant around here. We're going to have to find out what grows in their soil. We're going to have to find out when they plant. We're going to have to talk to some of these people so that we have something to eat. Now, what else does it do? It causes them to rely upon God for having received food. God is the one who sends the rain. God is the one who stalls the scorching sun. If God doesn't intervene and move in these people's lives, they will not eat even though they toil. People who for for so long were completely independent and indifferent to what God was telling them, and now they have to rely on him fully. I can tell you I am a terrible garden farmer, new term, for three foot by eight foot once a year, I am firmly convinced I could never make it as a farmer. I would take subsistence to a whole nother level, right? I would have to start eating grass. And so God calls these people in and he tells them, this is what you're going to be. You're going to largely be an agrarian society. Some of you kept sheep, some of you kept animals. Those have all been killed, they've all been slaughtered. You're now gonna come in and you're going to be farmers, farmers in a foreign land. He's breaking their heart so that their heart might not beat for themselves but it might begin to beat for him. They gotta build houses, they gotta plant, they gotta eat from their toil and then he comes in and look what he says to them. Take wives, have sons and daughters. They look at it and say, well, we're here. We don't have a whole lot else to do. We might as well get hitched. So he says, okay, take sons and daughters to yourselves. And then look what he goes on to say. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Any, in any sense in their hearts that this is going to be temporary, God is dispelling. God is completely extinguishing any inkling of thought that would come into their minds to say, this is just going to be for a little while. What he describes to them is generationally living amidst their enemy. They're going to get married, they're going to give their kids in marriage, and then they're going to give their grandkids in marriage. This is what he describes to them. For 70 years, they toil. For 70 years, they live in this place. As neighbors, as friends, as pillars in the community. This is what he calls them to, this radical investment in this community. To a certain degree, you can see how as he goes through this, they might be creating in their minds, and certainly some of us have created in our minds, the ability to live in a place and not be involved in a place. This is what most of us do. Most of us, live either in Greenville, Hunt County, Farmersville, wherever you live. Most of us live in these places, but we are not involved to the degree of really costing us something. We want a quiet existence. We want largely not to be troubled. We want to pass our days and at some point retire and pass them somewhere else, somewhere better, somewhere nicer. So God interrupts any inkling that this might be their reality. This is what he does. He steps into this and he says, it's not enough to build homes, it's not enough to eat crops, it's not enough to grow numerically through your family. This is what you're gonna do. You're gonna advocate for your enemy. You're gonna intercede for your enemy. 
You're going to go to those who hate you. You're going to go to those who formerly tried to kill you. You're going to go to those who killed your family members. You're going to go to those who brought you into this new place. You're going to go to those who destroyed the temple. You're going to go to those who every fiber of your being tells you hate them. Why? Because they hated me, they persecuted me, and they killed my family. And this is what he says to them. Seek their welfare. Some of us come to Matthew 5, 43, and we read to this idea that we're to love our enemies. And we say, that's really hard, but you know what? I don't have a lot of enemies. I have some people I don't care for, and that's about as far as it gets. But this Old Testament example, he's calling them to a radical investment in those people's lives whom had formerly tried to kill them. Everyone there knew someone who had died. No one was untouched. Everybody was intimately familiar with the details of what had transpired, what had happened. And so he comes to them and he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. I want you to think about that. God doesn't just call them to think happy thoughts. God doesn't just call them and say, imagine what it would be like if things were better in Babylon. If things were better in Babylon, things would be better for you. God calls them to an active investment of their lives in that city. Seek their welfare. Now this word welfare comes, comes to us from the Hebrew word shalom, which is this twin idea of kind of peace and prosperity that they would do well and they would experience peace. Not peace as in the cessation of violence, not having people attack them, but they would recognize peace as flowing from, solely coming from God. This is what he calls them to. Seek the welfare of the city. Then he turns to them and he says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God ties these things together. He inextricably links their own welfare with the welfare of this city. And so begin to think through, what in the world difference does this mean to me? I don't live in Babylon. I'm not an exile. We recognize, according to 1 Peter, you absolutely are an exile. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if the testimony of your heart says to you, I believe that God sent his son to be a perfect and a perfectly sinless man to be a sacrifice to God that my sins have been placed upon him that in his death and his resurrection I find forgiveness if this is what you would say then friend you are a citizen of heaven so everywhere you go Every place you go, no matter what country you are naturalized in, if you give up your U.S. citizenship and now you become a citizen of France, ostensibly because you want to pay higher taxes and eat croissant, then you'll recognize that your citizenship ultimately has not changed because your citizenship resides in heaven and not in any country, not according to any man. And so what we find is that we live each and every day in exile. And so in each and every day we live in cultural exile, we find ourselves having this mandate, having this word from our God who calls us to a radical investment in everyone we meet. All those who are not also exiles of heaven. And so this led to this this growing uh, passion in my heart. This grew, this this really, uh, let's call it a holy rage and frustration. Man, I would drive up and down Wesley Street and drive in different places of our city and see church after church after church after church and meet Christian after Christian after Christian. And frequently I would hear people and they would say to me, hey Matt, did you know that Greenville's in the Guinness Book of Records? I don't actually believe this is true, okay? 
I don't. You can't verify this anywhere. Some of you, you just believe everything. But they would say to me commonly, Greenville's in the, in the Guinness Book of Records. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. What's it in there for? And they'd say, most number of churches per capita. And I'd say, are you kidding me? That's terrible. Their belief in the thing doesn't validate it, but it does prove to the point that there is a real problem in our community. We have far too much poverty for this many churches. We have far too much homelessness for this many churches. We have far too many broken families for this many churches. We have far too many social ills for this many churches. If the number of churches should be moving in direct response to how many Christians and our active involvement and investment in lost people's lives, then Greenville should never have a single homeless person. Then Greenville should never have a broken home. Then Greenville should never have any issues with poverty. Why? Because if the number of churches are in direct proportion to people living on fire for Jesus Christ, then we should meet every need. Why? Because we find ourselves seeking the welfare of our city. This is where God has called us. This is where God has planted us. You might not like it. You might want to live in Rockwall, and you're saving your money to move there. You might want to move to Uptown Dallas, and you're saving your money to move there. Hey, that's great. But right now, while your butt's in this city, he owns you, and what he calls you to is an active investment in this city. Do you hear what I'm saying? None of us get a pass. This is where he's placed us. Man, I got to tell you, when I was three years old, my dad took a job in Stavanger, Norway, and so we moved there. And I moved over and over and over again. Greenville's the longest, this is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. And as long as God gives me the great fortune to live here, I will pour out my life seeking to make a difference in the city. Why? Not because I'm good, great, and wonderful. Don't ever believe that. I'm not. Because I want to be faithful. I don't care if God has you in Point, has you in Bland, has you in Celeste, Kingston, Lone Oak, or someplace that's no longer a community anymore because the population grew so small. Wherever he has you, you make a difference. Wherever he has you, you seek his kingdom, and in so doing, you will see people come to know him, you will bless them with Jesus, and we can transform any place we are. Justin said it earlier, we are salt and we are light. And we have to be seen. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then his call for you is a radical investment in whatever place he's put you in. Not to find somewhere else to be a Christian that is easier. Not to find somewhere else to move where you might like your neighbors more. It doesn't matter. They probably don't like you either. Find a way to invest yourselves in their lives. Find a way to make a difference in your work, in your home, and God forbid at Walmart, because that place needs some light. Amen? Hey, let me, let me begin to move us into a time of prayer. This is what we want to do here. We recognize that things begin to change when people pray, when people submit their hearts to God. And so I'm going to ask that, that we move the microphones out into the aisles. This is what we're going to do in this time. We have a time where we have asked some folks that they would already begin to think about what would God have you to pray for? And then as God moves in your heart and you have a one to two sentence prayer that you would like to speak in this time at this place, we're gonna ask that you would come to one of these microphones you would speak that prayer. Or maybe God lays a verse on your heart. Maybe God lays a verse on your heart and you wanna come forward and share that verse. Or maybe that as you're in this time, you said, man, none of this makes any difference to me. You know, as I, I look at it and I think about it, I, I, I don't really care anything for my neighbors. I don't really care anything for them. And, and I've heard you guys talk about, a lot about being a believer and follower in Jesus Christ, but I just don't think that's true of me. 
You've never come to the point in your life where you have submitted yourself and asked God to forgive you for your sins, where you've turned away from them and begin to follow him. We're going to have uh, myself and others down here that would love to pray with you during that time as well. Or we have some that are being baptized today. Maybe you'd say that I'm a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, but I've never come forward and, and publicly expressed that through the ordinance of baptism. Or maybe you just need to come forward and say, look, I don't need to pray, but I need to be prayed for. I've got some sin in my life. I need to be prayed for. I've got some, some anger in my life. I need to be prayed for. So let me, uh, let me pray for us as we begin to move into this time and ask that as you have opportunity and the Spirit prompts you in your heart that you would make your way to one of the microphones as we enter into this time of prayer. Father, we just pray that in this time, God, that you would move in our hearts, that we would be moving in submission to you, God, help us to be a people faithful. Help us to be a people responsive. Not a people momentarily motivated, but a people forever surrendered. So God, would you move in our hearts in this time that we have an opportunity to pray corporately? Would you stir up the hearts of men and women and children to passionately pursue you in your name? God, each week we pray for the community that we live in. Each week we pray for its churches. We want to see churches occupied by pastors whose hearts only beat for you. Never their own fame, never their own glory, but only for yours. Churches filled with men and women whose hearts just long to pour out their lives before you, whose lives are a blank check submitted to you. So God, we want to pray for that this time. God, I thank you that that we have over 300 volunteers, that we have this budget, that we have these churches. God, we pray that it would be more. That we might be more impactful, that we might demonstrate to this city, to this community, what it looks like when salt and light steps up to the plate and does what it's supposed to. What it looks like when Christians take seriously the Great Commission is not just giving money for somebody over there, but walking up and down their streets here, praying here, being on mission here. So God, would you send your spirit to move in this time in our hearts, that you would prompt us to pray, that you would prompt us to be obedient to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.